I hope and pray that that is true of you. And um, I just want to encourage you as a church family, if um, when you're singing, if you're kind of like this, hallelujah, all I have is Christ. You know, if you're just kind of barely singing, you're not in the spirit of that song. I mean, that's a song that demands all you got. And I want to encourage you to open your mouth and you sing. Remember, the service started with the passage that said, make a joyful what? Noise to the Lord. It's okay. The people around you can handle it. And I would much rather have someone singing with all they've got that maybe is a little off-key or maybe not quite as beautiful as Ben or Alex or Clara Menorah, and I would rather hear the great joy of the hearts being sung. So I want to encourage you, Sheridan Hills, to sing harder, to sing stronger. Can you say amen to that? John Phillips, I want to see your, your juggler veins sticking out, all right? Give it all you got. You know, our church is so blessed to have so many that come into this fellowship and um, grow and then go out, sent out to the four corners of the earth, whether they be moving back to Atlanta or Chicago or New York or sometimes over to the west coast of Florida where things are a little bit calmer. The Sand family is here. Where's Dave and Regla Sands? Where, where are the Sands? Can you all just kind of lift, lift you up? Wait, I don't see David. He was here. And so now he's taking care of one of the children. But the Sands are home. We're so thankful for that. This is a family that we love. They've moved over to the West Coast. So, and Dave is walking in in the back. David, you're late for church. And uh, <laughs> here you are. I mean, you know, come all, drive all the way across the state. And you're like, okay. But as part of our church family, we have young men that are growing in the gospel and growing in ministry. And this morning, Enrique Rojas is going to come and preach to us the Word of God. And he's going to be preaching the sermon in many ways that I would be preaching. Last Sunday, I told you, you need to read Romans 5, 6, 7, and 8 in preparation for this message as we look at this difficult passage that talks about the fact that those who are in Christ stop sinning. It says, don't keep sinning. That's kind of what the literal words are there. And we're going to take a few weeks and say, what does that actually mean? And how does this victory over sin come? And so this morning, I am excited that Enrique… Enrique has preached to our children and to our youth for the last several years, um, really for the last three years, very consistently. Very often while we are in here, he is preaching to our children in a, in a format that they can understand a little bit better. We have several others that also teach in there, Billy Johns, Patrick Lacuti, Eric Spee, and others. Um, but Enrique is one of those. But this is his first time to preach in this place. And so, Enrique, would you please come? You need a sermon outline. If you don't have a sermon outline, these men are going to come forward and give you one. And let's let God speak to us through the Word. God bless you, brother. Thank you, Pastor Andrew. It is a great privilege to be here today with you guys. And I'm just very excited. Today we'll be looking at 1 John chapter 5, verses 18 to 21. And 
We actually studied that last week as well. We focused on verse 18, and Pastor Andrew went over some blessed assurances that believers can have. We can know these assurances, right? And one of these assurances is that converted people, Christians, have upward victory over sin. That means that as they go through their lives, they're constantly overcoming sins and struggles that they face. Now, if you are not a Christian and you're here today, well, our, our charge to you is to turn to Christ and believe. If you turn to Christ and believe, these blessed assurances of God can be yours as well. And if you are saved, realize that you have these assurances and enjoy them. Just enjoy the promises of God, the gifts of God. We're going to read the text, and then we'll pray. We'll start at verse 18. This is God's word. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. But he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding, so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that you sent your Son to die for us. Lord, as we... Look at this text. Lord, I thank you that we have victory over sin. Lord, I pray that this reality will become clear in our lives. Lord, I pray that if anybody here has not overcome sin in their lives by trusting in you, I pray that they'll do that. I pray that they'll listen carefully, that they'll meditate on your gospel, and they'll come to know you. Lord, I pray that this time you will speak to us, and you will help us, and you will sanctify us. We pray all these things in your son's name. Amen. So when I study texts, my way of doing things, I'm like, sometimes like a little child, you know, they ask, why? And why? And you give them the answer, and they go like, why? And why? And why? And they just keep asking why repeatedly. Well, I'm kind of like that. I just keep asking questions, and I keep asking questions. So when I read this passage, I ask, well, if you have been born of God, you don't keep on sinning. So what about those that are not born of God? Well, those not born of God know no end to their sin. Look at Hebrews 11, 6. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. So if you do not have faith in Christ, then pretty much all you do is sin. All you can do is sin. You do not honor him. You do not seek him. And if you have sin in your life, then you must suffer a penalty. But before we go there, I think about Psalm 51, verse 5, when he talks about in sin... My mother conceived me. That means that in a fallen world, our parents who are sinful had us in this, again, fallen world, and we have inherited that sin nature that goes all the way back to Adam and Eve. We have Adam's sin nature in our DNAs, who we are. It's in our flesh. If you are not born of God, then you're born of the flesh, and you're obedient to it, and your desires are for the flesh. And God says that the wages of sin are death. So if you have not been born of God, then you're heading towards death. Now, it is true that the Christian will also die. 
Because if we have sin, we must die. But we'll either die with Christ or we'll die in judgment alongside the evil one. I feel like we get a lot of our visions of what heaven and hell are from cartoons. And often we see the devil in hell punishing people and torturing people. But if you read your scripture, you read Isaiah, I mean, I'm sorry, not Isaiah, Revelations, you see that the evil one, the devil, will also be casted into death, into the lake of fire. So you will die alongside the evil one. We see in this passage, actually, that the power of the evil one has its grip on the world. The evil one just has a grip upon this world. He knows just how to get you to sin. He knows just how to get you to distrust God. He knows how to get people to look away from God and to look to themselves and to look to the things of the world. He has power over that. But if we know Christ, who is true, we can have eternal life. Jesus is the only way to be free from the bondages of this world. Now you may say, I don't have sin. You may say, I'm a good person. Well, your sin can be a multitude of things. It could be your attitudes. It could be maybe you're disobedient to your parents and you don't honor your parents. That is true of adults as well. Maybe you just love to talk, and by talk I mean you love to gossip. You, just, you, you disguise your gossip as, well, I'm talking about this person for their own good, so I can figure out how to help them. Sometimes we're just gossiping. We're just doing it for the sake of doing it. Maybe it's the things that you watch on your phone when you're alone and, no, and you think nobody's watching. That could be the sin in your life. Or it could be just merely not trusting that God is good. That God is God. If you are there, I have a hope for you. I hope that Jesus came and he took upon himself the punishment of sin. He died in the place of us, but he didn't stay dead. He rose again three days later, according to the scriptures, so that one, we don't have to pay the penalty for our sins, it is paid for. Two, we know that in him we have eternal life. So if you have not come to that knowledge, I charge you today to think about it, to meditate upon it, and ask God to make this truth real in your life. But what about the believer? Can I really be born of God if I have sinned? It says, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. Does that mean if I become a Christian, I no longer sin? Is that what that means? Well, let's look at this. It says, those born of God do not continue in sin. You cannot be a follower of Christ and make a habit out of sin or make a practice. You look at 1 John chapter 3, verses, verse 4. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. So, Christians, if you have a habit or a practice of sin, you need to look inwardly and consider what is going on. Why do I continue to practice sin? A Christian should not be entangled in a life of sin. However, do Christians sin? The answer is yes, I sin every day. And all of us in this room sin every day. And we'll actually look at righteous men of God who fell. I think of guys like Noah, right? Noah was called a righteous man to walk with God in Genesis chapter 6. It took three chapters, just three chapters, for Noah to go on 
and become drunk and naked. What about David? David received one of the best compliments you can find given in the Scripture. A man after God's own heart. What a beautiful description given to him by God. A man after God's own heart. But then he went on to sleep with a woman that wasn't his wife, kill her husband to cover it up. So David, a great king, a great man who loved God, falling in mighty ways. How can this be? Well, there's that sin nature. But how can he love God and still have a struggle with sin? Well, you see David's repentance of that sin that he committed. You see a man who had sorrow over his sin. He tore his clothes. He fasted. He, he was in torment over his sin. He ran to God with his sin. When you read the Psalms, the Psalms are filled with David seeking repentance, asking God for help, asking God to show him how to walk in his ways. David was a sinful man, but he was a man who loved God and sought after God. What about Peter? Called to be an apostle and a disciple by none other than Christ himself. Christ called Peter to come and follow him. Christ and Peter spent plenty of time together. Peter was part of Christ's inner circle. And yet, when things got tough, what did Peter do? He denied Jesus not once, not twice, but three times. He fell in a horrendous way. It was devastating. He denied his Lord. His Lord. He denied him. After he was warned that it would happen, he said, I will not deny you. I'm going to stand with you. And yet, he denied him. But the story doesn't end, end there. Every time you see, but God in the scriptures, circle it. That's what I love to do. But God. In Peter's life, it didn't end with his fall, but God intervened, and he was redeemed. And Jesus asked him three times, do you love me? And Peter says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus commanded him, tend to my sheep, care for my flock. So even though Peter had fallen into sin, he went back to Christ, he repented, Christ redeemed him, and then Christ went on to use him in mighty ways. Peter was used by God to build the early church. And you can see the same with Paul and many others. When you look at the Scripture, every character in the Scriptures is a sinful person who was used by God except for Christ himself. You see, we have this, the reason we have this struggle with, with our sin is because, yes, in Christ we have died to our sin, but there's a remnant a remnant of flesh in us. I think of John chapter 11, the story of Lazarus. Most of us are familiar with it. And if you read the story very carefully, there's two details there that I normally miss. The first one is that Mary tells Jesus he smells like death. He has the odor of death. So when you look at Lazarus, he's, and he was dead. He was dead for four days already. He smelled, and it was a horrible smell. And then Jesus goes and says, Arise, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus comes back to life. He's risen. He's alive. But he was wrapped, that's the other detail, he was wrapped in the clothes that he wore when he died. Do you not think that clothes smelled like he did when he got buried? Probably did, right? John MacArthur puts it this way. We have been raised, but we stink. 
We have been raised, but we stink. That was the case with Lazarus. He was alive. He had newness of life. Yet the order of death, the remnants of death, remained. Likewise, we have been raised to new life in Christ, but the remnant of our flesh remains, and we need to be fighting against it. We live in an age of what's already been done and what hasn't happened yet. And I'm not talking about eschatology here. I'm talking about we have been justified in Christ. Let's turn our page over. We have been justified in Christ, and we are holy, we are accepted, we are innocent before the Lord, but our glorification hasn't happened yet. We haven't received our new bodies. Did you see that in Romans chapter 8? We haven't been restored to a perfect state where sin does not dwell in our flesh any longer. So then we have this awkward period in between the already and the not yet, which is called the sanctification process. But let's focus on the first one for a second. In Christ, we have been justified. That, when Chuck prayed, he actually said that we have been justified. What does that mean, to be justified? That means to be pardoned from your guilt. That means to be forgiven of your transgressions. So we can stand before God innocent. We can stand before God blameless. Look at Romans chapter 5, verses 9 to 11. I would encourage you guys to open your Bibles if you have one. If you grab the Pew Bible, turn to Romans. It's actually page 11, 17. You're going to need it today. We're going to be studying from it. So open your Bibles to the book of Romans, and we're going to be reading. I put some of them down. Not all of them are there, so you are going to need your Bible. They'll be on screen. So Romans chapter 5, verses 9 to 11. Letting you all turn your, your sheets. All right, this is God's word. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled. Shall we be saved by his life? More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So we see that when we are justified, then you are now a new creation. The old is gone. You're new. A new creation. And that makes you a holy creation, a righteous creation, and a loved creation. Do you know that? Do you know that God, if you're in Christ Jesus, loves you? and views you as an innocent child. You're adopted into his family. He cares for you. In fact, look at First John. He says that he does not let the evil one touch you. He gives you understanding. He cares for you. He loves you. If you have been justified, our faith is also secured. And neither sin or the devil can separate us from God. This is a very important truth for us to, to think about. Very important truth for us to meditate on because we think, I have a struggle with sin. Most of us, I would just say all of us, are going to struggle with sin. All of us are going to struggle with sin at some point in our lives. We're going to struggle even after coming to Christ. And we're going to say, This sin doesn't mean that God doesn't love me because I'm sinning. Doesn't mean that I don't love God because I'm sinning. Doesn't mean that I'm truly not saved. Well, hold up. Hold up. It, it could mean that. You, could, you need to think about that. But only if it's a habit, if it's a practice. 
If you're just struggling and battling sin, but you are trusting in Christ, then He will work with you. He will forgive you. He will help you overcome your sin. He will not... God has you on the grip, in the palm of His hand. He's holding you tightly. Who's going to come up to God and try taking you away from His hand? Who? The evil one can't. He knows His place. He knows He can come before the Lord and try to snatch you out of His hand. So we can trust that, yes, we may struggle with sin, but if we trust in Christ, we are loved, we are protected. Now, does this mean that because we are in Christ, we can go on and on and on in sinning? No. And Paul has some strong words about it that we'll look at later. He says, by no means. Our secure faith is not an excuse to go on sinning. Our secure faith should be something that propels us towards holiness. The fact that we are saved, the fact that we know Jesus, the fact that we are loved by Jesus should make us say, I want to be like him. I want to run towards him. I want to be holy like Christ is holy. I want to imitate Christ. That should be what happens when we realize that we've been saved, not by our own doings, but by God. When we sing songs like, all I have is Christ, that's what we're saying. There's nothing good in me except the Holy Spirit that Christ sent to me. So when we think about the fact that God keeps us, that should make us want to go near Him. That should make us want to run towards Him in holiness. Let's look at Romans chapter 8. So turn your sheet. You were on, page, you were on chapter 5. So go to chapter 8 in your Bible. Verses 31 to 39. And it says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Christ intercedes for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulations or distress or persecution, famine, nakedness, Danger, the sword, none of these things. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything. Nothing can separate us in all creation. Nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord, who saved us. This is a beautiful passage to think about. God loves us and nothing can separate us from his love. Not even our own stubbornness. Nothing can separate us. If Christ has redeemed you, he has justified you, you cannot lose your justification. You cannot lose your salvation. When you, lose, when you are in a court and the judge declares you not guilty, you cannot go to trial again for the same charges, for the same crime. If the president pardons somebody, you cannot go around the president and charge him again. That just doesn't work. The devil will try it, but God has granted us forgiveness in Christ Jesus. The devil 
can try condemning us, but we're forgiven. What of it? I think of Martin Luther. He says, yes, I know the devil's trying to throw the sin in my face, and I know that I sin, but what of it? For I know an advocate in Christ Jesus. So we're justified and we're held securely. We can trust in that. We can trust in that. But then there's also the reality that when Christ returns, he comes back, we will be glorified. We will have new bodies, no more sin, no more toil. We won't suffer anymore. We won't, we won't struggle anymore like we do today. We won't suffer. We won't sin. We will no longer die. Death will not be a part of the new heaven and new earth. And there will be no more crying. In fact, God himself will wipe your tears away. And we will dwell with God. And we will dwell with each other. We will dwell with God and each other in perfect love forever. This is our hope. We are thankful and we rejoice in the fact that Christ has died for us and we have been justified. But we look forward to his return. We look forward to the new heaven and the new earth. This is not our home. This is not the best it gets. We're waiting for Christ to come back, to give us new bodies, to establish a new kingdom that's everlasting, that is perfect and just. That's our hope. This is why we wait eagerly for the return of Christ. Look at Romans. We're still in chapter 8. Romans 8, verses 18 to 25. For I consider that the suffering of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So whatever you're going through right now, your struggles right now, do not compare to what Christ has prepared for us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope. But the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait for the, we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So we're trusting, we're waiting for Christ's return. We're waiting for him to glorify us and make things better. We, we've grown inwardly for this day. We pray, Lord Jesus, come. Come, Jesus. But now there's one more step. We talked about we are already justified, and we talked about we will be glorified. But what about today? Where does that leave us? We're justified, but we still struggle with sin. We're holy, but we're still battling. We still have the toils of the world. Well, we're in a process called sanctification. And realize that I say process. Sanctification is not like justification or glorification. Once you're justified, that's it. You're justified. When Christ returns and you're glorified, that's it. You've been glorified. But sanctification happens every day. It happens every morning when you wake up, and it happens as you go on about your day. It happens even right now as we're studying God's Word together. So when you think of sanctification, think of process, think of discipline. I'm a runner. I like to run. 
I don't run fast, I run far. I'm a distance runner, run marathons. But part of that, being a, a good runner, is for me to be able to identify what I need to do to improve in doing it. Exercise, eat well, drink water, rest well. I need to do those things if I want to improve. But it's not only knowing what to do, but what to avoid. So I know that I need to avoid things like Dr. Pepper. That's my kryptonite. I love Dr. Pepper. It's just, I can't do it. So I need to avoid those things. I need to avoid staying up late. I need to avoid running with shoes that are messed up because that might injure me and I might not be able to continue running. So I need to be aware of what's good for me and what's bad for me and practice those things. So when we are being sanctified, we need to be aware of what things are not beneficial, what things are sin. I want nothing to do with that. What things are helpful and be disciplined in those things. What things glorify God? Be disciplined in those things. If we want to overcome sin, we must walk in newness of life. Where do I get that from? I get that from Romans 6. So, grab your Bible, turn the sheet over to the page before. Romans 6, we're reading verses 1 to 4. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin, still live in it. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too may walk in newness of life. You have a new life. You're a new creation. So act like it. It is the will of God for us to be sanctified. I often hear people talking about, oh, I wonder what the Lord's will for my life is. I wonder what the, God wants me to do with my life. Well, if you read 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, it says very clearly, God's will for your life, if you're in Christ, is to be sanctified. That is what he wants for you. We talk sometimes about God wants good things for us. Well, the good thing that he wants for us is to know him and to be sanctified. Now, I keep using the word sanctify, I just realized. I haven't defined what that means, to be sanctified. Well, to be sanctified is to be made like Christ. It's to be made holy. To be transformed, to walk like Him, and to be just like Him. But in order to do that, we have a position, right? We have enemies. We have the devil, and we have our own sin. In order to grow in holiness, we must resist the devil. We must resist them. Now, here's what ends up happening. Some of us tend to be overconfident. I think of myself, again, going back to me as a runner. I brought it up for a reason. Back in 2020, I had a race lineup. I had a few months of, you know, awareness. I knew I was going to run, and I was training for it. And I trained really hard, and the day the race came, I was very confident. I'm like, you know what? I'm going to finish this race. I'm going to get first place. I know it. I just know it. I was so confident that the night before, I didn't even bother to do like the things that I usually do to prepare, eat oatmeal, drink water, rest early, all that stuff. I didn't do any of that. I was just like, this is going to be easy. And then I showed up, and the one thing that I couldn't prepare for happened. It was one of the most humid and a very hot South Florida day right here at T.Y. Park. It was horrible. Mile one hits out of three miles, and I was like, I can't do this. I can't go on. I can't do it. 
we often do that in our own walks with the Lord. We say, I got this. I can take care of my own sin. I can do this. I can go one-on-one with the devil. Let me tell you, you go by yourself, one-on-one with the devil, you lose nine times out of nine. I was going to say nine times out of ten, but nine times out of nine. (laughs) So don't do it on your own. Look at James chapter 4, verse 7 to 8. Submit yourself, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Notice that it says, resist the devil. How do we do that? Well, by drawing near to God, by running towards God. It is not that the devil sees you resisting him, and he goes like, oh, I'm scared, he runs away. He knows just what to do to get you to stumble. He knows just what to do. He knows how to lure you. He's been studying humans for more time than all of us have been alive. Combined, I would even say. He's been studying us. He knows exactly what to do to get us to sin. So if we go against them on our own, we will fall into sin. We will give into temptation. But if you draw near to God and you find your refuge under the shadow of the wing of God, and the devil sees you hiding under God, he's going to flee. He doesn't, he doesn't want to deal with that. He's going to see you hiding under God. He's going to go find somebody who isn't. Somebody who's being idle and not running towards God. That's who he's going to go after. So how do you resist the devil? How do you overcome sin in your life? Flee to God. Run to God. And he will flee from you. The devil will flee from you. So you're walking with God. The devil will flee from you. God protects you. And the evil one cannot touch you. That is verse 18 of 1 John. The evil one cannot touch you. And we're drawing near to God. He draws near to us. And in doing so, he guards us and sanctifies us. If we want to live our lives with victory over our struggles, if we want to live our lives with victory over our struggles with sin, we must walk in step with the Holy Spirit. That's out of Galatians chapter 5. You see, we have this issue. We talked about we have the remnant of our own lives, and that is the flesh. And we have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. And there's this struggle, because the flesh desires what's contrary contrary to the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit wants for us what's contrary to the flesh. So we have this battle of flesh and Holy Spirit. And the idea is, you need to walk with the Spirit and the desires of the Spirit if you're going to overcome the desires of the flesh. But if you give no mind to the Spirit, you give no mind to the things of God, the flesh is going to take advantage of that, and you are going to stumble. Our flesh opposes the desire of the Spirit, so we must walk with the Spirit, and we must resist the flesh. So now, here's the question. What can believers do to fight back against their struggles with sin? Now, I'm not going to give you a systematic theology on resisting sin and escaping sin, what I decided to do was, from one sinner who struggles with sin, tell you and advise you in things that have helped me in my own walk. But let me tell you, these are all biblical. I got them all from Scripture. So the first thing you need to do is recognize that without God's help, we can't do it. I'm sure most of us have tried. I tried it multiple times. Sometimes I I catch myself still trying to do things on my own. We can't do it. Without God, it is impossible. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 6 to 7. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. 
So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. You want to grow spiritually? You water, you plant, you're disciplined in doing those things. But unless the Lord is the one growing, then you're toiling in vain. There's not going to be any results. It is God who grants growth. So you want to grow spiritually, you need God's help. Now, the second thing, you realize, okay, I need God's help. So I ask God and his Holy Spirit in me to help me. Do you know that that's why we have the Holy Spirit? The Bible calls him the helper. He's here to help us understand, help us to walk in newness of life. But then, we know we need God, and we need his help. But here's what you need to process. You need to love God and love him deeply. You must love God deeply. And you must need God desperately. It's not just, well, I need some of his help. You're desperate. I can't overcome my sin. I can't do it. It's taking over me. I need you, God. I need you to help me. If you want to live a life that is victorious over sin, you need God desperately, and you need to learn to love him. How so? Well, if you love him, you keep his commandments. It falls. You love him, you keep the commandments. How so? When you when you love God, it is a pleasure for you to obey Him. It is not just, oh, I gotta, I gotta read my Bible. I gotta do the right thing. It's not like that. It's like, I wanna read my Bible. I can't wait to see what God has for me today. I can't wait to spend time with God in prayer. I can't wait to spend time with God and His people. So when we love just everything, our desires must be for God. If you wanna love God, obedience will follow. Now, let's get very practical here. One thing you can do is to remember. Remember the cross and all that Christ has done for you. Have a heart of thanksgiving. If you're thankful for all the things that God does, you're more likely to walk in step with the Spirit. You're more likely to submit to Him. If you wake up in the morning and you think, well, the first thing you can thank Him for is, I woke up today. Thank you for a new day. And then you thank Him, I'm, I'm here I have a roof over my head. You can thank him for the little things, and you can thank him for the cross. You don't deserve it. I don't deserve it. We don't deserve Christ dying. He was innocent, yet he did. He died for us. So think about that. Meditate on that often. The second thing you can do is read his word. Read the Bible. And I don't just mean go on your Bible app, look at the verse of the day, say, oh, that's nice. Put your phone away and go on with your day. I mean really read it. Meditate on it. I have a challenge for you guys. When you go home, don't do it now. Don't take out your phones now. When you get home later today, maybe at night, take out your phone, go on your settings, and hit digital well-being. Just go through the setting, you'll find it. And when you click on it, it'll tell you how much time you spend daily on each app. Here's my challenge to you. If you spend two hours on Facebook, I challenge you to spend more time today or tomorrow or every day reading the Word. If your number one app is Netflix, I challenge you to spend more time reading your word. Now you might say, well, that's impossible. I watch three hours on Netflix, four hours on Netflix. I can't spend four hours reading the Bible. That's a problem. You need to cut down Netflix (laughs) and read your Bible. You might say, well, I could sit here and read it. I can't. I'm a reader. I just don't have the time. Well, again, you have four hours on Netflix. Cut down on that. Spend more time in the word. See how it changes you. The word is valuable. Look at the psalms. I have three different psalms here that I'm going to read. I'm going to read them together. 
but there are three different psalms. I put their references to the side. And it's all about the Word of God. Look at this. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. And it goes on to say, they'll revive my soul. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. So the Bible, God's word, is sweet. God's word is precious. It's more valuable than gold, more precious than silver. And if we store it up in our hearts, we will not sin. But we need to study it. We need to meditate on the word. We need to think about it. Read it consistently. Read it daily. And don't just read all over the place. Read book by book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and see how your understanding of Scripture will change, your love for Scripture will change. You don't know where to start. You're like, well, I don't know where to start. Read John. Read the Gospel of John. You don't know where that is in your Bible. Go to Table of Contents. Find it. Read John. And then read Romans, and then read First John, and then go back to Genesis. And do it in that way. But read it chapter by chapter, consistently. It will change your life. The second thing is that you pray honest and vulnerable prayers. The Lord loves when we pray very honestly and we just pour everything out that we have. We cast everything, all of our anxieties, our worries, our needs before him. He's pleased in that. He loves to have a relationship with us. He wants to do that. So pray that way. Look at the Psalms. And see how David wrote these psalms and he prayed and imitate those prayers. In fact, here's my second challenge for you today. My second challenge is that as you wake up in the morning or maybe when you go to sleep, you do this. You go to Psalm 139 and you read Psalm 139 and you pray that prayer often. Pray verses 23 to 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there's any grievous way in me, if there's any sin in me. And lead me in a way of everlasting. Lead me down the narrow path that leads to life, that leads to you. Pray that every day. Pray other prayers like Psalm 90, where it says, Teach me to number my days so that I may apply myself to your ways and gain a heart of wisdom. Pray things like that. Pray through the Psalms and see how God loves to answer honest, vulnerable prayers like that. Ask Him to come in. Ask Him to help you. He delights in those kind of prayers. Now, the next thing you can do is sing to God. Do you know that the word sing appears over 400 times in the Bible? And 50 of those are commandments. The Lord is pleased when we sing. And we are encouraged and reminded of deep biblical truth. When we were singing earlier today, I was just being reminded of not building my life upon the things of the world because they're going to fit away. But to build my life on the solid rock of Christ, there was an encouragement in that. It was a great reminder for me to do that. So sing. Look at Psalm 96, verses 1 to 2. Three times you see the word sing in one verse. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. So sing to God. Look, it says to make a joyful noise, not a pretty noise. So you can't sing well, it's okay. Just sing anyways. The Lord is still pleased. He's not looking for you to be very performative and very talented. Although if he gave you the talent, use it. But that's not what he's looking for. He's looking for your heart. 
maybe your first step to singing isn't just singing the songs. Maybe what you need to do is sit there, look at the screen, read the lyrics, or if you're at home, look up the lyrics, read them, think about them, meditate on them, and then sing them like you mean them. Let those songs be true. Don't just sing for the sake of singing. Sing them because you believe it. Sing because you believe that Christ is the solid rock in which I stand. Sing because you know that all you have is Christ. Sing it and mean it. If you sing often in your car when you're driving, you ever stop by me in a red light, you see me having a whole concert of God by myself. It's not pretty. I can't sing. But I'm singing. When we gather here together, it's such a sweet time when we sing praises to the Lord. Sing and see how your heart for God changes. So you want to grow in love for God, spend time with him. Talk to him in prayer, listen to him in his word, and sing to him. Sing to him. Now, this is very important here, not only do you need to love God, you must love the church. And you need to realize that you need the church. It's not that, well, the church is optional. You need it. If you're a believer, you need the body of Christ. Christ didn't come to redeem you to be an individual. He redeemed you to be part of a body. I know a lot of people who may say, well, I'm good with God, but ah, church people, I just don't know. Um, I'm not a church person. I'll, I'll worship him on my own. And that's just not biblical. That is just not what God intended. God intended it for us to be in community. Sure, sometimes it's rough. We have different personalities, different walks of life, and we just, it's like, it's difficult. We have difficult brothers and sisters sometimes to to deal with, but we are to love them too. If somebody has wronged you in the church, the proper response is not to say, well, I'm just going to cast them out. I don't need them in my life. I'm going to ignore them. That's just not the proper response. Christ forgave you. Christ forgave them. Who are you guys to not forgive each other? So you need to be forgiving toward one another. The Bible, like Pastor Andrew was saying earlier, is about God and his people. We focus in sometimes on an individual to get a story across, get a message across, but the story has always been about God and Israel and about God and his church. It's always been about God and his people. So when I say, I say church, don't think the building. Think people who have turned to Christ, who've been adopted by the Father, gathering together to do what we're doing today, singing, praying, studying. That's what I mean when I say the church. So, very practical ways to love the church. Pray for the members. Pray for one another. Where do you start? Every week, week after week, we hand out lifelines. And when you turn them around, the first side has a devotional. When you turn it around, it has a list of needs in the church. I encourage you, go grab one. They're in the back. There's some on the side over there. Grab one, put it in your Bible, put it on your fridge, wherever you see it, and look at it and pray for the members. Pray for them. Give them a call. Hey, how are you doing? Another way you can learn to love the church and grow in your love for the church is to serve the church. There's plenty of opportunities to serve the church. Think Campus Scare Day. Children's ministry up there always needs people. Greeters. Greeting is a very important thing to do. Sometimes serving is just coming a little bit early when nobody's in this room, everybody's in growth group, and just coming by and making sure the pews are clean and organized, that there's no papers or things left behind from Wednesday or from the week. 
little ways to serve. But serving, see how when you serve, you will gain a heart of gratefulness and humbleness. And you learn to love the people you're serving, and the people you're serving will learn to love you. So serve in the life of the church. Give to the church. Give to the church and do it joyfully. And be hospitable by greeting people. You see somebody you've never met before, say hi to them. Shake their hand. Hey, nice to meet you. I'm so-and-so. If there's somebody in the church that you haven't talked to in a while and you see them, hey, we haven't talked in a while. Maybe it's that one person you're upset with because they hurt you. Go up to them. My third challenge for you today is after we're done with our singing and our praying and our studying, and we have the two-minute rule, if you have any issue with one of your brothers, go to them and seek reconciliation. Maybe go out to lunch with them and talk about what you need to talk about and get it worked out. If, if there's nobody that comes to mind, then find somebody you usually don't go to lunch with. Maybe somebody who's new, maybe somebody you've seen around. I know this person comes to my church, but I've never talked to them. Go out to lunch with them. You see somebody sitting on their own in one of the pews after, say, hey, come join me. Come join my group of friends. We're going out to so-and-so. And just go out together and have meals together and enjoy together. Do that. Another way you can be hospitable is through community groups. So remember your community groups and be involved in your community groups. God intended for us to be in community. We are not meant to be alone. When God created Adam, he said, it is not good for man to be alone, and he didn't just meant marriage. Two is better than one. Again, we, we think about marriage when we think about those verses, but it is man was meant to be in community. We were meant to be in fellowship. So loving God's people is a great reminder of God's love for us. But if we are to live in community, we can just be kind of, oh, it works itself out. A lot of times we say, well, it's just hard. Nobody reaches out to me. Then go up to somebody. If nobody's reaching out to you and you see nobody seems to be talking to you, then say, okay, I'm going to go and find somebody and I'm going to go talk to them. And again, I encourage you, if you see somebody who's alone, go and talk to them. But loving God's people will remind you of God's love for us. And being with God's people will encourage you to be more like Christ. You will not, if you are constantly around other believers, you are less likely to fall into some of the most obvious sins than you do when you're alone. You're not going to be watching weird stuff on your phone if you're constantly surrounded by other believers. And you're not going to want to. You won't have any need for the things of the world when you're surrounded by the love of the church. When you're surrounded by the love of the church, you're feeling loved by the people, you're feeling loved by Christ, and it's easy to say, take the world. I don't need it. I have everything I need in Christ. I have him, I have his church. I don't need anything else. I'm good. So being with Christ's people helps us be accountable. It helps us be accountable to one another. If you see your brother struggling with sin, talk to them. Tell them, hey, you're in sin, you need to repent. Encourage them. Walk with them. Take up on them. Now, you still might be saying, I really don't think I need God's people. Well, I just talked about all the reasons I think you do, but don't take it from me. Take it from the Scriptures. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 19 to 26. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I had no need of you. Nor again, the head to the feet, I had no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. 
And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. So the church is composed of many members. And every part of the body has a need for another part. We all need somebody else. We all need each other. The Lord does not want us to come here and be divided. He doesn't want us to be one group over here and one group over here and group A doesn't like group B. That's not what he intends. If you go to a church and you see that they sit on different sides and they don't like each other, run out the door. Leave. That's not where you want to be. You want to be in a place where the people, yes, we're sinners. We're going to upset each other. We're going to hurt each other. If you're married, you know that very well. The person who probably offends you the most is your wife or your husband. If you have children, that's probably true. Your children probably offend you the most. It will happen. But Christ did not intend for there to be division. Christ forgave us. We were divided with God. We were separated from him. And he forgave us that we may be reconciled. So Christians ought to seek out reconciliation with God as well. Again, if there's that one person that keeps coming to your mind that you're upset with, go and talk to them after. Pray about it and go talk to them. Guys, we live in a fallen world. We see what's going on in the White House, and we see what's going on in Ukraine. We see what's going on in our own lives, our sickness, our, you know, the economy. Look at the gas prices. We are in a world full of struggles. Going at it alone, it's just, it's just not, it's not good. But if we do it together, it becomes bearable. If we bear each other's burdens and we celebrate the things we're celebrating together, if we do those things, waiting for Christ becomes easier. Waiting for Christ becomes more joyful. We can say, Lord, don't tarry, but while we wait for you, I'm thankful that I have my brothers and sisters. Look at Hebrews chapter 10. 24 and 27. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as it is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. For a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversary. So let us consider, how can we encourage one another to love and good works? We're going to go over some questions. I want you to close your eyes, bow your heads. I'm going to read the questions, and then we're going to pray. And in our time here, we'll go on to the next thing for today. Is there any sin in your life that you have not repented of? Whatever it may be, attitudes, words, thoughts. Is there any sin that you have not repented of? Bring it to Christ. If you do not know of any sin, pray Psalm 139. Ask for the Lord to reveal any sin that may be in your heart. Does your lifestyle demonstrate that you have been born of God? If it does, praise God. And if it doesn't, why not? What's keeping you? Do you know that you are God's? 
do you struggle with assurance? If you do, go to, run to the Scriptures. Read, pray, ask God to assure you that He loves you and that He's with you. Maybe what you need to do is repent and trust in Him and place your faith in Him. Ask yourself, how can I better love my church? Let's pray. Father, we recognize that in our flesh we desire nothing of you. We sin against you day and night. We were conceived in sin. But we're thankful that you loved us before the foundations of the world and you sent your son, Jesus, to die for us. You sent your son, Jesus, to take our place, take our punishment, that we may not have to suffer the consequences of our sin. You not only crucified him, but you also brought him back to life, that we may have hope that death is not the end, but we'll be raised again in new bodies where sin reigns no more, and we'll be with you, rejoicing together. Lord, I pray that as we go out of this building into the world, that we'll be mindful of this gospel, that it will be on our lips, ready to go out, that we'll be disciplined in our prayers, that we'll be disciplined in our Bible reading, that we will be disciplined in our loving one another, in our caring for one another, in our forgiving one another. Lord, you say that we cannot offer you gifts if we are not at peace with our brothers. So Lord, reveal to us any sin that we may have and help us repent of it. Help us walk in newness of life. Lord, we recognize that we cannot do this without you, so we ask that you help us. Lord, help us get rid of this world and our desire for this world and give us your son. That's all we need. We pray all these things in your son, precious and glorious name. Amen.